Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. Hell comes to fraud down or visions of an inuracene future. <laughs> Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Horror Vanguard. I'm John, otherwise known as the Liquid Guy, joined as ever by my friend and co-ghost, Ash. Ash, how are you doing today? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good uh, for being alive in Frogtown in the early 21st century. It's uh, it's pretty okay, all things considered. Here we are in the wasteland at the end of the 20th century, uh, and we've got to we got to deal with these frogs man this is going to be the frog episode i've got i've got a bowl full of flies i've got a slightly irradiated beer i think things are looking up for me <laughs> uh it's going to be fun it's going to be a lot of fun uh we are talking about uh, you know maybe maybe one of <laughs> that, that is actually the, the correct response <laughs> You know, like I said to you when we before we started recording, sometimes I think the films that we deal with are very kind of subtle um, in terms of their theme and the issues that they want to explore. You know, Die You Zombie Bastards, um, Birdemic, deeply subtle, Troll 2, deeply kind of intricate piece of cinema. Um, and then we come to another, in this, in this kind of stable of films, uh, we are talking about the landmark uh, of cinema, the 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 the, uh, the incredible hell comes to Frogtown. Truly, truly, there has never been a movie made that is even remotely similar to this film. <laughs> we are going to get into uh, a whole lot of discourse. Everything we we are talking about everything today from. From breeding all the way to uh, to Kantian philosophy, today is going to be quite the episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun uh, here in the in the ruins in the end of the end of history, where it's just me, you, and Rowdy Roddy Piper. But for people who have maybe somehow not seen the the Citizen Kane of frog based nuclear wasteland road movies could you please explain what is hell comes to frog town really all about you, you you say this but there there's actually kind of like an extended frog town cinematic universe with a bunch of spin-offs and this one is the citizen kane of post-apocalypse <laughs> nuclear wasteland frog monster movies <laughs> i was being a hundred percent serious <laughs> I'm really sorry uh, to, to the people behind Toad Warriors and Max Hell Frog Warrior, but... Uh, I, I said I said what I said, and I stand by it. <laughs> Hell, Hell Comes to Frogtown is a hard act to follow. <clears throat> and however, uh, if you haven't seen this movie before, I am so sorry. <laughs> Reflect for a moment on the art of cinema. Think of a motion picture like Titanic and the 11 Academy Awards it so richly deserved. Consider the profound emotional experience of a truly great film. Then, blow it out your exhaust pipe, cinema lover, because here comes theory with frogs on it. Want some recap? Well, here it is. It's the start of the 21st century and the capitalist masters of mankind have blown their collective wad. Environmental collapse and the decay of falling empire sets the stage as the contradictions inherent to capitalism boil over. The future of horror movie criticism rests in the galerton of two weird dudes. Join them as they ask the hard questions other movie reviewers are afraid to. Why are we so obsessed with frogs? Is this the Anurasian? Why is California consistently used as our collective vision of hell on earth? Your ghosts, I mean hosts, of Horror Vanguard discuss Hell Comes to Frogtown. <laughs> uh, listeners, I also want you to imagine that whilst Ash was talking, uh, I, an absolutely sick Megadeth riff was just playing <laughs> underneath that. Um, I think that would really kind of bring things together in your minds. 
But no, All we're right. talking we're talking about Hell Comes to Frogtown, starring uh, kind of the paragon of schlocky horror movies that accidentally or perhaps intentionally have deeply important political crit- uh, <laughs> criticisms. Uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper and uh, Sandal Bergman, who uh, all of you Conan fans out there will recognize, as well as the star of her own franchise, the Red Sonia films. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, we are. We are dealing with uh, Hell Comes to Frogtown, and I am so excited. So let's let's start by talking about nuclear war and the end of human civilization. I mean, what what better place to start than the end? Because uh, what I really love, what I really love is that, like, so at certain kind of generational points, massive events become kind of, like, funny. So um, the classic example is um, Independence Day, right? Independence Day, it's the apocalypse, but it's fun! It's amazing, <laughs> like... The, the dog survives and the, the president gives the speech um a more modern example um the the new wolfenstein games right um they're nazis but it's enormously fun to sneak up behind one of them and just stab them to death with literally no remorse and it's a kind of cathartic experience this film does that kind of thing but with nuclear war. So like in the 50s and 60s, when it was like, it was treated very seriously, you know, there are those horrifying public um, information commercials showing children just getting like atomized in a second. But then when we get to the 80s, suddenly it's like, let's put a heavy metal riff under these intro credits and just talk about how the world got blown the fuck up. That's all you need to talk about the nuclear nuclear, uh, end of the world in the 80s. Yeah, you know, there's only there's only so many times we can we can go through the apocalypse with sorrow in our hearts. At a certain point, it just needs to become silly. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. And in a way, it kind of shows that by the '80s, people had kind of stopped worrying that it was a genuine, real possibility. You know, when it's when something becomes fun, in a way, it shows that collectively we've gotten over it a little bit. There's a, there's almost there's almost something darker about that though, right? Like you think about like the the Mad Max movies are set in like these incredibly broken and tragic worlds, but everyone is having the funnest time with their clothes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like like Hell Comes to Frogtown is set in a nightmare world. Um but it's goofy and I think that there's there, there's something really like almost cloyingly evil about this. And that's like before uh, I don't know, March? <laughs> I mean, you know, my, my opinion on zombie movies was that they were fundamentally unrealistic because I'm like, okay, these shambling corpses would never be able to spread an infection across the world. That's ludicrous. It would be stopped. And now I'm like, oh no, 100%. Mm. Uh, it would take them about a weekend and everyone alive would be a zombie. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, <laughs> I, I think like there, there's, there's all this discourse of like, oh, they're a, a perpetual and unending virus becomes the new normal. And we learn to live under it, and then we learn to have fun under it, and then we incorporate it back into our lives. And I think that there's something kind of darkly cathartic about these movies, right? Because this this is in the 80s, you know, and the, like the fear of nuclear apocalypse hasn't gone away. It's still here. Uh, America has more nuclear weapons than every other country on the planet, and most of those are rigged to an aging system that's that's going to fail eventually. The threat never went away. But what kind of changed, I think, is there's only so long you can live in paralytic fear of something before your mind starts playing with it, before it becomes a different part of you. And that's yeah. part of what we're seeing in Hell Comes to Frogtown. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I would completely agree with that. I Hell, Hell Comes to Frogtown is the logical conclusion of creating Mad Max films. <laughs> uh, and of course... I, I would also say that it is the um, progenitor of Mad Max Fury Road um, because, firstly, they, they both sort of have almost the same plot um, in, lots of, in lots of really important ways. But secondly, there's 
another aspect to this which I think is important to pick up on. Not only is everybody having just the most fun with their clothes, everybody is just driving the sickest cars. Oh like, yeah, mm-hmm. the ca- the car the cars in this are just great. Um, but there's something really strange about this when you stop and think about it. That in the aftermath of a nuclear apocalypse, the key resource of life is still fuel it's still petroleum it's still fossil fuels um it is it is a film produced by the um by the petrolocene you know this idea that actually the key ingredient to life in the 80s and arguably still up to the present is petrol is fossil fuels and is the consumption of them um there's so many important points in this film are determined by fuel you know uh the guy's chainsaw runs out of gas he has to go and get more fuel for his chainsaw you know they're trying to uh, get into the to the to the um trying to get in into town driving in their in their hot pink car <laughs> they have to escape again it's all fuel dependent so i think it's really interesting that we're dealing with like nuclear annihilation but still we can't quite get away from fossil fuels yeah yeah that is that is a persistent fear that we have (laughs) it's like what's what's scarier the end of the world or the idea that you might not drive your car (laughs) i love i love the stakes there it's either the world's gonna end or i'm gonna not be able to drive to the 7-eleven or i'm gonna need to get a hybrid help (laughs) Yeah, I think it, I think it definitely it, it speaks to kind of the imaginative or lack of imaginative space that kind of comes with capitalist realism. You know, we just we just flatly cannot see beyond the world we live in now, and it's also kind of tied with that that is deeply related to the fact that like in today's world, especially in America, like if you don't have a personal vehicle, your freedom is really 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 cut back where you can work where you can shop who you can visit the things you can do with your life just fundamentally dwindle because there's no public transit here and yeah you know we we see those fears made manifest right you know and especially like you know we we've increasing oil crises you know fear of peak petroleum and things like that all playing into this idea of like okay well how do we how do I get to work in a world where cars don't work? There's like a fundamental fear to that, but that fundamental fear is rooted in capitalist realism because we could just, I don't know, imagine not having to go to work. <laughs> it's an interesting its an interesting kind of gap in how we think, right? So even if the rest of the world had been destroyed, we still struggle to think of like, it's, it just shows how deeply kind of fossil fuel consumption is ingrained, you know? It's all very well if you're talking about like maybe we should recycle more, but it, but if even at the end of the world, even in the post-apocalypse, we're still driving around, it's like we really haven't kind of thought through the radical nature of the shift in how we live and organize ourselves. Yeah, and I think another part of this too is it's a specifically for us, for specifically for people on the left, it's a fear of an an incompleted political moment, right? You know, like we're we're on a precipice right now where we have like a deadly pandemic, high record highs of unemployment, record highs of people uh, suffering housing precarity. And if we if we don't strike while the iron's hot and reach out to these people and start building communities and start connecting, someone else will, and that someone else is going to be your like. Uh, a toady kind of Mad Maxian <laughs> villain yeah. sitting yep. on top of of a throne made of oil barrels, you know, like like there's there's kind of like this weird, almost unintentional left fear that's embodied in these kind of like Mad Max esque uh, apocalypse films. Yeah, I would agree because it's it's the, it's the fear of a world wherein we don't win. But that's a justifiable fear, and it's a fear that's actually important to kind of work through right if uh, this idea that like we're not really allowed to consider that because that would be defeatist is sort of i don't know it strikes me as kind of willful blindness but if we are you know hope is not naive optimism if we seriously reckon with the possibility of actually 
you know, when given the choice, would 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 people prefer to work with us or with you know the 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 frog warlord <laughs> who hoards the irradiated <laughs> beer and the oil supply? I think I think that's a, that's a question that we have to kind of wrestle with. Absolutely. So one thing, one related thing that I did want to touch on is the use of the desert as kind of a vision for an apocalyptic hellscape and why that is, right? Because the practical answer to why that is, is that Mad Max is Australian and the desert, like a desert landscape is an Australian type landscape. Also, Hollywood is right next to this giant desert. So if you need a big open expanse that doesn't have a lot of like people shopping for coffee in the background where you can blow up cars without a lot of consequences, go to the desert. <laughs> it's a big sandbox. You know, you can, there's minimal risk for you to film your movie there. So that's kind of the practical side of, of why so much of these movies are set in the desert. It just works. But then I think there's this really interesting kind of like imaginative cultural space <clears throat> where we want to see apocalypses as something inherently foreign to us you know as something far away as something distant and remote right deserts deserts aren't typically well established spaces in the way we imagine the use of land and and how our societies are constructed they're they're isolated they're rugged they're difficult to survive in and this this makes that kind of environment primed for apocalypse but, you know, like as, as we'll see in like a lot of other, some zombie movies, some vampire movies, there's a lot of apocalypse that comes back home to the city, that comes back home to forested climates. And I think like centering the desert in apocalyptic conversation is a way to kind of shield ourselves from the realities of it. Yeah, there's, I mean, of course, like if you look at what the word actually means, um, apocalypse is not necessarily just the end of the world. Apocalypse is um, the unveiling of knowledge. That's what the word means. And I think there's an interesting tradition of that being tied to desert spaces, but I do think that that is a way of distancing that kind of knowledge. The apocalypse, the knowledge that we don't want to confront happens out there away from us. But, you know, there's a famous quote from capitalist realism, which is the that the apocalypse is not down the road; it's being lived through. You know, there is a knowledge that's being unfolded in front of us, but we choose still to kind of pin it on these cultural locations, which are distant and away and out there that we don't necessarily have to confront. But if we're talking about the apocalypse, if we're talking about the apocalypse, then there's a kind of another theme that comes up in this film that i think we should probably talk about as well right which is the idea of um anthropocentrism because we are dealing with we're dealing with um giant mutant frogs but these are giant mutant frogs which in many ways seem almost indistinguishable from human beings um what do you think about that in the context of this film i i think it's really interesting um because what you know we have we have these so the the movie is a movie about giant frog monsters that were created as a byproduct of this global nuclear war that has plunged the earth into a perpetual desert the frog people are aware of the fact that they're like mutants that just kind of like came into existence because of nuclear war and their weird uh precarity in that but um the frogs it's it's not like uh you know, Annihilation comes to Frogtown where the frogs are like the shimmer and they have this unknowable, untouchable agency that's fundamentally outside of human experience. And and they're in creating things that to us are a kaleidoscopic nightmare, but to itself is just existence. Uh, the, the frogs are just people, you know, like like this is, you know, your standard mutant monsters and they, they have like their mutant overlord and their little like mutant fiefdom and a mutant capitalist economy, but it's just, it's humanity, but what if we were giant frogs this time? Yeah, exactly. They wear uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> right? They wear clothes. They're giant frogs that wear clothes. And I know, like, that is most definitely a costuming concern. <laughs> yes. It's cheaper to put a cloak on a frog mask than it is to build a frog person. <laughs> uh, undeniably so, yep. I was gonna say it, it does it does beg a little bit of an interesting question 
And that's kind of the political realities of anthropocentrism, right? <clears throat> because when we talk about anthropocentrism, we talk broadly about a human-centered perception of reality and a human-centered kind of framework. But I think, I think we can use this movie and use the frogs as kind of an interesting jumping off point to talk about the political implications of anthropocentrism um, because humanity isn't just an anthropos, right? We're not just one monolithic group of people. We're a, a fractured species. We're a bunch of different groups of people with competing political goals and ideologies. And a lot of times what winds up being and standing in for the anthropos isn't vague notions of humanity. It, it has this political valence to it. And in, we can see that in this movie, right? And we see that where we're looking at an anthropocentrism that's kind of like a cold look in the mirror. The, the, the frog mutants are reflecting the worst of humanity, but it is nevertheless of humanity. And so we're seeing this kind of impartial and broken anthropocentrism that is politically extant and plays into culturally hegemonic forces, right? Racism, homophobia, all of these things play into what becomes a lot of our anthropocentric viewpoints and the ways we project those onto uh, frog mutants sometimes. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think the whole point about, like, th this is a very classical thing with monsters, right? The, the, what, what does the monster show us? The monster shows us ourselves. Um, so really what we're shown... I think I think your point is pretty valid if we kind of get rid of this idea of a of a universalizable subject. Yes. So what we have here is we have really the monstrosity of the 1980s because this is when the film's produced, right? So it's an anthropocentrism that reveals a kind of uh the 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 the, the mutations of 1980s cultural ideology. So they they are all raving capitalists. They are all, you know, casually misogynistic, and they have sex slaves, and they um, uh, are he heavily militarized and feudalistic, which is completely fitting, right, with the with the eighties vision of what the end of the world would be like. Um, you know, contrary to to the uh, the reality, which is that you know generally people are, um, relatively kind of altruistic and and not purely self-interested that was the ideology of the 80s that's the that's the anthropos that we're talking about here and that's what we get reflected back in the figure of these mutated frogs <laughs> oh my god i love what we do no I, I think i think i think you're completely right and i think like explorations of anthropocentrism changed over time and what the anthropos is is almost uh it's it's almost occulted in a way, right? It's the ghost inside of each of us, right? That's that's what the Anthropos is. It's not some some totalizable universal self. Mm, yeah. And we get that in the frogs. <laughs> and as we can see here, the guy in the cool-looking frog costume is an example of this point. Well, speaking of that, let's talk a little bit about frogs. Oh, let's do because it. Because this is... Because this is an unusual thing for an end-of-the-world movie. Uh, zombies, very common. Other kind of monsters, um, yep, totally fine. Frogs are an interesting one, right? And I know I know, we were talking about this before we started recording, that you'd done a little bit of kind of research into how, culturally speaking, frogs are perceived and understood. So frogs, frogs are incredibly interesting for the discussion we'll be having today. <laughs> and uh, in one part, they're, they're goofy animals, right? Frogs are, there, there are frogs that are fatally poisonous, but even they are cute. You know, there's, there's nothing particularly threatening or uncomfortable about frogs. And not in the same way culturally that we have the same fears for snakes or rabid dogs or rodents or things like that. They lack all of those kind of cultural phobias and negativities which puts them in this really goofy place but it becomes really interesting when we look at when frogs pop up in the news and there's one reoccurring thing which always puts frogs front and center and that's mutation you know uh, frogs kind of become this apocalyptic bellwether 
because they are uh, frogs are amphibians and amphibians have a very permeable skin the water that they live in is is routinely passing through their bodies right and moving in and out through their flesh which makes them incredibly susceptible to things like chemical poisoning radiation fertilizers leaking into the water supply anything that would change the chemistry of their you know swampy aquatic homes can enter their bodies and then change their bodies throughout generations and kind of what we see is that frogs become like a bellwether for apocalypse, right? Like um, in Minnesota, a bunch of school kids discovered a pond full of mutant frogs behind their school. Uh, there were frogs in Russia that were discovered with clear skin. There are frogs all over the planet that have um, various mutations because of how they interact with the byproducts of human society. Um, there's a chemical, I don't know if it's still in sunscreen, but it used to be in some sunscreens that would cause certain amphibians to switch genders randomly. Mm. Um, so we see in frogs this kind of like, it's like the canary in the coal mine for a modern context, right? Because they're so hyper susceptible to, to various kind of, uh, environmental pollutants, there are these like warnings because it's going to happen to them before it happens to us because we're less susceptible. And so we see in the fear of these mutant frogs and these mutant frogs as an adversary and an enemy, we have the same kind of anxiety over this environmental degradation we're living through, right? And we see it emerging in a really interesting way because the frog monsters are silly. They're not particularly threatening. And so we see that even when we're trying to have moments of levity, we can't really escape the environmental uh, nightmare that we're waking up to, right? It's, start it's starting to seep into us in the same way that it caused frogs to sprout a bunch of limbs and to have their skin become translucent. It's, it's seeping into us, and it's affecting the way we imagine. So I have a really important question. Yes. <laughs> it's fro it's frog-related. What are your feelings about them putting chemicals in the water that turn the frickin' frogs gay? <laughs> Well, I think I think like you know we 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 jokingly bring up the the infamous Alex Jones frog quote, <laughs> but I think I think that, I, that that is a really good point here, right? Because like Alex Jones, notorious bigot, hack, uh, general loser, um, but what we see is that like so so much of kind of this like conservative imaginary space is purely projection. Right. It's not it's not a fear that the frogs, you know, it's not it's not they're putting chemicals in the water that's causing the frogs to grow limbs out of their head, you know, because that's a projection of a fear that we have. It's that they're turning the frogs gay, which is a projection of a fear that Alex Jones has, or at, yeah, least, or at least if his viewers have a, a view that he believes he could make money from. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think that's a good, you know, <laughs> it's a good and strange transition point into the psychosexual tensions of humans and frogs. Uh, indeed, this is there is a there's a lot of sex in this. There is a lot of, um, well, actually, there's a lot of there's a lot of discourse around reproduction in this, mm -hmm. um, because there <laughs> because the premise of this film and the re okay. Okay, I think we need to contextualize this. Just <laughs> this a little bit. some really important context here. Here's um, the context, right? So the premise of this film is um, that the majority of um, men are now sterile. Um, in fact, quite a lot of people um, are, are now sterile. And so um, fertile men are, you know, really important. They are... Um, captured by the government uh, by an or militarized organization known as medtech uh and then their their function is to basically impregnate as many people as possible so let's let's start there <laughs> what do you, what do you think about how this film establishes its premise and why sam hell is so significant to medtech <laughs> Well, well, so a little, so Sam Hell's character, played by uh, uh, you know fam famous wrestler Rowdy Rowdy Piper, also from the the film They Live. Um, his his character has legendary sexual prowess. That's in fact how they're able to capture him is because he's left a string of 
of jilted lovers, uh, impregnated people, and, and tales of his sexual exploits wherever he goes. They follow the trail and they find him. Um, <laughs> so, so in, in, in like, we, we have a lot of, we, we have to talk about Sam Hell's dick if we're going to be talking about this movie. <laughs> Once again, Once we again. have arrived back at the dick scores. <laughs> it is, it is something, there's something about phallic symbology that is so virile uh, in today's cinematic discourse. <laughs> Le- yeah, let's, let's, let's talk about Rowdy Roddy Piper uh, piping. Let's, let's talk about... <laughs> oh hey, my god. The- <laughs> I think that was the best joke I've ever heard. Lead the way. Um, okay, so what, what, the first thing I want to talk about is that we what, one of the things that we see here is is sexuality becoming weaponized by a governmental structure, right? Med medtech is this um, it, it's it's the body in the provisional government that's trying to reclaim the apocalyptic wasteland, right? It's it's mm-hmm. the beating heart of of human society, right? And uh, after after Rowdy Roddy Piper is captured, um, and he agrees in exchange for his freedom, he's going to become part of their program to uh, impregnate as many people as possible. And then they they kind of like they put him in a cage, like like a uh, a fetish fetishistic cage, right? Um, like almost like a chastity belt, right? Um, <laughs> but it's got like this big red indicator on the front. And it says like government property across it, and if if he disobeys orders, uh, they will they will blow his dick off. <laughs> uh, if he tries to escape, they can electrocute him through his dick. They can like he is he is caged and owned by the state, right? There are plenty of shots of um, his crotch with these big red uh letters emblazoned over the chastity cage that he's been put in that just says government property um and here we come to the first kind of big psychosexual projection which is that i was watching the opening sort of 20 or 30 minutes of this film and was just kind of imagining uh a, a men's rights activist just just screaming red in the face that this is the future <laughs> that feminists want all all of us people who are exactly like rowdy roddy piper will be captured by hot female soldiers and then put in dick cages and made to work for the government um which is which is genuinely what happens in the first in the opening acts of this film but it's a great way of highlighting how this kind of this loss of male power is seen as a as a massive threat but actually it's it's a threat that's projected outwards onto these kind of right wing psychosexual par- psychosexual paranoia you know that's desperately afraid of losing something yeah i i think i think that is completely correct so much of this movie is the psychosexual paranoia of of kind of like popular right wing thought and if we pick apart what's happening to 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 Sam Hell, it's like he he's in this incredibly strange apocalyptic situation <laughs> where <laughs> where humans are rapidly losing the ability to breed, and it's like that that plays directly into like like a day doesn't go by that that, that some op-ed writer for the New York Times doesn't give us a new version of like why millennials are having less kids that somehow completely skips the issue of uh, a plague that feels like it will go on forever of of an economy that just keeps tanking and tanking and tanking of debt that just gets higher and higher and higher of of childcare that costs people $10,000 a month you know like these these unthinkable horrifying barriers to having children totally skipped and it becomes something like oh well we see here that uh, uh millennial women enjoy careers and that's why there aren't enough children anymore and non millennials and their avocado toast Right, the sterilizing effect of avocado toast. That's the conspiracy. Avocado toast is making the frogs <laughs> sterile. <laughs> but no, um, we, we... and and of course, and of course, for the right, um, everything comes down to genetics. Yes, you know mm-hmm. the the ability the the ability to, as they so creepily put it, breed. Yes, yeah, and it's 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 the framework of it all too, right? 
um because like you know we do we do have a prominent um black actress playing like one of the med tech military commanders but then she's out of the film and gone Mm -hmm. you know and so like it's it's got this this same like right wing kind of ethno state that it's trying to recreate right because it's rowdy rowdy piper a white guy going to rescue all these white women and and uh, have sex with them and so we have all these like right wing psychosexual tensions that that are doing what they do in the real world they're completely missing the point right the point is that society has been thrust into like this uh militarized authoritarian fascist state you know, where people can be press ganged into literal reproductive labor in order mm-hmm. to sustain the military apparatus. And that that's completely ignored. And, and the focus instead becomes on they're, they're using dick cages to mind control us. Because <laughs> <laughs> here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. It would be very e- I actually think in some ways this film is quite is quite progressive and has some interesting ideas. But um, here's, here's the thing. If you kept exactly the same plot, but you stripped out medtech, you you got rid of um, Spangle and you got rid of Sentinella, this would be a right-wing fever dream of a film, right? Of the virile man going off to rescue oh, yeah. the white, w- white women. But all it takes is the addition of uh, these two female characters and this... Um, matriarchal military force to make it into a nightmare for these people (laughs) even if nothing else changes and to make it so much more of an interesting film this film is completely transformed for the inclusion of the exploding dick cage yeah (laughs) that is truly that is truly the single creative thing in this film that fundamentally reinvents the entire text without that the, yeah. you would be 100% right. This would just be a disappointing and troublingly conservative film. Yeah. I struggle to think of any film that wouldn't be improved with the addition of an exploding dick cage. I mentioned Titanic earlier, and wouldn't a secondary and literal <laughs> ticking clock element to that movie really just up the ante? So let's... I, I feel like we need, need to kind of dig into the sexual politics of this a little bit more, because this is where... This is where the big kind, the big ideas are in that dick cage. <laughs> <laughs> it's time. It's time. You're right. It's time we took a saw and just cut the cage right off. Yeah, uh, it, the ideas are right in there, along with Sam Hell's legendary hog. Let's <laughs> let's let's let. I mean, this is this is the thing. He is infamous for being so good at sex. You know, people get pregnant just by sitting next to him. It's that's how virile Roddy Rowdy Roddy Piper's character is made out to be, but let's kind of talk a little bit more about the the sexual and gender politics of this film with um, gigantic mutant frogmen in it. Uh, what what do you th- <laughs> can you just write this off as like can you can you just write this off as like a dumb schlocky eighties film with a with a kind of veneer of male fantasy and misogyny in it i mean you can but i would never recommend doing that and i think uh to kind of dig into that and to dig into why i say that i i think we need to put this movie in context with another film uh, and that's conan the barbarian Uh, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of similarities right uh beyond sandal bergman's involvement in this project um we we kind of have like the same thing where like these are two vehicles for hyper masculine aggression and prowess and violence uh, but co- where conan is kind of always ready like like it's part of conan's character is that he's always ready to engage in hyper masculine violence whether it's whether it's literal or sexual or, or however conan is just constantly ready to go um but with sam hell we see that he's really not that the reputation that follows him is mythological right mm-hmm. it, it yep. has its own life it has its own character we're we're, we're treated to many uh, uh scenes many sequences of this movie are dedicated to sam underperforming or sam not being able to perform or him being worried about performing and mm-hmm. instead of becoming this vehicle for this kind of potent and unbreakable male aggression he becomes instead this vehicle for a much more real heteronormative male anxiety. 
Yeah, totally. He, um, he, he, no, <laughs> sorry, go on. I, also, he's he is generally uh, seems that he comes off as generally well-meaning. He is. Um, there is a weird element of coercion precisely because of that character trait, right? Where he's he's constantly saying, you know what, I don't don't really know if I want to have sex right now with this person that we've just rescued. But uh, especially in the opening half of the film, he's constantly being told, well, it's your job, it's your duty, you're a soldier now, you 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 have to <laughs> you have to go out there and just bone for freedom. Is That's it? what you have to but there is an element that here of where I think things get really interesting, which is that reproductive labor has become both nationalized and militarized, right? They've, they've essentially, um, the, the structures of med tech have, have completely taken control of that, which means it's not really possible for it to kind of be free, right? There are, um, Sentinella, uh, wants to hook up with Sam because who wouldn't and gets into his into his sleeping bag with him but says that it's against the rules because she's one of the very many people who are sterile in this in this um nuclear wasteland of, of a world so there is something about this which is a bit more kind of complex than just simple male misogynist power fantasies I would argue and I would completely agree with that. Like, I think um, I'm really happy that you point out like the militarized aspect of this, right? Because like in the background, we're always getting like this military music, you know, Sam's Sam's reproductive prowess is always couched in like, he's a soldier now and he has to do his duty and serve. And like, you know, like the, the, the final line of the movie is uh, Sandal Bergman's character is like, like, Oh, now that we've rescued all of these babes, now the real work starts. And she like gestures back to all the babes in the car, and then and then uh, Sam Hell looks at the camera and he's like, "A soldier's work is never done." Wink, waka waka. <laughs> yeah. But I think I think what we're seeing here is we're seeing like, uh, uh, you know, the way that patriarchy demands only a certain kind of maleness to be performed, right? It's it demands Conan the Barbarian and not Sam Hell. Right, everywhere mm. Sam goes, he feels like there's this burden for him to constantly perform. You know that he has to be ready for sex every moment. That he has to be like, like this. What is Wolverine's character if not a man who can always get it up and nothing can break how hard he is? You know, like like that is the penultimate <laughs> expression yep. of this. And Sam Hell breaks that expression. You know, he's an exploration of like, okay, but that's not that's not realistic. You know, that's not true. And he exists in this kind of uh, like anxiety inducing space. Yeah, there's there is a tension. There is a tension. Um, because he is, you know. Well, I, I semi jokingly put this in the show notes, which is that Sam Hell is a himbo. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I do think that, there, you know, he is a super hot guy ripped but also not the kind of most he's he's a bit he's a bit oh, like, he's a he dumbass kind of wanders into the... <laughs> he's, a, he's a bit he's a big goofy dumbass who just happens to have legendary sex game like, <laughs> <laughs> so that that is the crucial difference right there is not this kind of note of aggression and the film is the film is also really funny um and there is a kind of like goofy camp charm to a lot of it. But the other important point I was going to point bring out is that those uh, two women, Spangle and Citronella, they never, they are never put in a position where Sam is a threat to them. Yes. Either e yes. either physically or se uh, physically sexually, there's never that that dynamic never comes into it. And this this is something that but again I, that's because of the exploding dick cage. Yes, and this is something that I want to point out is that for the majority of the movie. Uh, uh, Sam is some kind of prisoner, right? He's either he's either imprisoned in the exploding dick cage or he's tied up by the frogmen, and and he's often like he, his his like legendary male prowess is constantly undermined by his own incompetence. Mm -hmm. You know, like there are, there are several instances where he just literally trips and falls into being captured by the enemy, you know, because he's just a bumbling doofus. 
Yeah, absolutely. And this, this it explores this tension so well between like what a a patriarchal heteronormative society demands of the men who live in it and real lived experiences of people who are still pretty close to those standards but nevertheless you cannot become a platonic ideal and this this brings up a really important point of comparison in the film which is between sam hell the the himbo with amazing hair versus uh count sodom who is uh, revealed at the end of the film to be the character that we saw right at the beginning, who is getting uranium from the frogmen, from the frog people, in order to build the only, the last nuclear weapon in the world. Uh, And the reason that that he wants to do this is because, in his words, there are too many women in the world. He has this kind of monologue right at the end to Sam where he says that this used to be a man's world and that, that's the point of contrast, right? Where you see male misogynistic violence that is on, on a scale that is going to annihilate the planet all over again versus Sam Hell. Um, <laughs> the, the, the guy who shotguns uh, frog mutants to death in order to rescue the, the, the hot, sexy women. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I would never have thought of it this way, but I think you're right. I think, I think in a lot of important ways, Sam Hell is a traitor to the patriarchy. <laughs> you know, just, just, like, just like those of us who, who uh, have privilege must become traitors to those systems which give us privilege, Sa- Sam Hell's conflict with Count Sodom is an expression of this. <laughs> No, I I completely agree. I'm completely with you. Yeah, there's um, and, and th- I think there's another really key point of this film that I want to bring up that I think, uh, j- just like the exploding property of the government dick cage he's in, really really drives it home. Um, when I was watching this movie, there's one scene that made me think of Midsummer, right? So what's what's the point of Midsummer that like I can't go a month without seeing a bad take about, and that's Christian got what he deserved. Right, um, you know, yeah. you, you can go, yes, queen. Right, yeah, you can go back and check our episode on Midsummer for a real deep dive into this. But basically, at a point in the movie, um, uh, Christian is drugged and raped and murdered by the cult, and like that's that's terrible. <laughs> but uh, we see a very similar scene in this movie, right? Uh, Sandal Bergman's character winds up capturing one of the women who live in kind of like the wasteland. And she's like, all right, Sam, it's time to do your soldier's duty, you know, and impregnate this woman for the, for the good of the military. And Sam, Oh, there is the recurring joke that the exploding dick cage has a flap precisely. So for this purpose, (laughs) right. And like, but but Sam refuses to perform, even though he is completely capable of doing so. And and it's very clear that he's uncomfortable with the situation, and, and you know he's he's not voicing this on ethical or moralistic grounds, but he's uncomfortable with what he's being forced to do. And like I think like you know we're you're absolutely right that the dick cage is the vital uh, kind of like uh, uh, moment of synecdoche for the entire movie. Right? <laughs> it stands <laughs> in for the movie as a whole um, because like a lesser movie would have just done the Conan the Barbarian thing. He, he, he would have just assaulted this woman. But like in this movie, like they're both victims. They're both victims of this militarized society, right? The society that has, you know, completely been destroyed and completely collapsed and is now under control of this militarized corporation. Right. Uh, we see that Sam hell is a victim because he's literally been enslaved. If he disobeys, they'll blow off his dick. <laughs> Um, and this woman has also been a victim. So we see that, like, the horror of society just creates more victims, right? It's this this endless churning oppressive force that grinds out injury and wounding and pain and forces people to participate where perhaps they would not have participated beforehand. Yeah. And here's the thing, right? As As... I I agree. Sam, Sam Hell is a traitor to the patriarchy, but his tra- treachery doesn't go far enough. No, yeah, definitely not. So the 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 revolutionary line, the kind of leftist line on this, is neither medtech nor Frogtown. <laughs> that's 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 the really the only appropriate position here. But at the end, you kind of have he kind of goes back to the militarized. Uh, space you know the yes more 
female drone pilots uh, world of of medtech that is there to to kind of enforce uh, breeding. You know, he he chooses to be a soldier. He doesn't choose to be free. And it's very telling that that decision happens after he's escaped the exploding dick cage. After he is no longer symbolically and literally caged in by the pro- uh, and marked as the property of the government, he still chooses to go back to them. And, and so yes, he is a he is a traitor, but the treachery doesn't go far enough. Yes, I I, I completely agree. It is it is an un- his his actions are unprincipled and underinformed, right? Um, it's more about self interest than it is about some, some kind of like principled political goal. Um, Which is exactly how capitalist hegemony works, anyway. Yes, yes, exactly. I, I think like one one of the most telling things about this film is like like you know we're talking about like these psychosexual projections that are going on, but like you know like look at the world around us today and are so, like like all all of the like uh, uh, free speech absolutists, all of the uh, Second Amendment you know hardliners. Like, like they have all dried up completely and disappeared and, and gone into total silence in the events of the pro- that have gone on in the last, like, you know, couple of months here in the States. And, like, what we see there is that, like, a lot of these ideological underpinnings that they allegedly have are just a smokescreen for other ideological underpinnings. They're just a smokescreen for racism. They're just a smokescreen for misogyny and nationalism. And that's kind of what we wind up seeing in Sam Hell, right? He he is presented with this opportunity where he can reject this militarized apparatus that's enslaving people, or he could uh, double down on his privilege and, and embrace the system and go on to continue to be a part of it. And he, he chooses the latter, which is like the horrific and deeply tragic part of this movie. So this is my sort of big, big brain take about, about this film which is that this is a film that depicts the abolition of the bourgeois family unit, but not the abolition of bourgeois normative heterosexuality. Instead, what you have is you have the state enforcing and policing and disciplining normative heterosexuality and actually, uh, you know, maintaining it by by the threat of literally blowing off somebody's dick. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and this brings us to like a really important point which is that in this film which i do think is interesting but is ultimately not really as radical as it could be there is one moment there is one avenue uh, a film that is so obviously and explicitly about sexuality and sex and desire there is one avenue of desire which is like literally you know not possible which is Sex between humans and frog people. Go on. And th- <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, be- and the reason why, and this is what I mean, where it says that, where I said that, like, we've abolished the bourgeois family, right? He is there to impregnate as many people as possible, but we haven't, it hasn't abolished, this society hasn't abolished bourgeois normative heterosexuality. Um, and the reason being, the reason for that is because what they want is they want new people to keep, to, to rebuild their society. It's an arms race, but with human reproduction. However, there is, I think that's an interesting absence, right? The fact that there is, not only is there no possibility of it because it's it's mandated by the film that that can, that can never happen, but also... This is as as the frog frog people point out. They were created by humans. They are already intimately bound up on a molecular level with human activity, but there is no possibility of sex. Right? There is no possibility of actually uh, a, a a a new kind of hybridity. The closest that this film comes to admitting that possibility is in the Dance of the Three Snakes. <laughs> Secretly, I was playing the game, uh, which of us brings up the dance of the three snakes first? <laughs> um, would you like to explain what the dance of the three snakes is? No, but I will. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, Spangle, uh, the character played by Sandal Bergman. Um, so so the uh, Rowdy Rowdy Piper's character and Sandal Bergman's character both enter Frogtown on a, a secret mission to, to liberate all of these women who've been captured by the mutant frogs. 
um, their their ploy to enter Frogtown undetected is that uh, Sam Hell has captured Sandal Bergman and he's there to like you know sell her off. Um, everything's going according to plan until it's not, and Sandal Bergman gets legitimately captured by the frogs. Uh, Rowdy Rowdy Piper's character also gets captured by the frogs. Um, but Sandal Bergman is forced to uh, erotically dance for the leader of the frogs. And uh, she performs the dance of the three snakes. Uh, the three snakes are not a metaphor. Uh, they are part of the frog's anatomy. <laughs> I'll let your <laughs> imaginations fill in the blanks of how this operates. But uh, that, that, uh, that, dear listeners, is the dance of the three snakes. Yeah, and that's the closest that this film gets to admitting the possibility that there could be a, this kind of that the the relationship between uh frogtown and medtech between you know humans and what has been created by humans is uh, an intimate one i mean this is like this is very frankensteinian in a way right you know what frankenstein wants um what frankenstein's uh creature wants when it comes back to when he comes back to uh, to victor is uh, companionship, recognition, intimacy. Um, and that's something that Victor Frankenstein absolutely refuses to countenance because of these strict ideas and, uh, you know, violently, militaristically enforced boundaries around reproduction, around desire, around um, sexuality. So this is why I think the film has obviously abolished the bourgeois family unit but has not abolished or broadens the spectrum of sexual possibility to uh, to include Frogtown within it. You are absolutely correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, th- I think I think like because we you know we get another scene where um, when Sam Hell is 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 part of the ruse of attempting to sell Spangle uh, the the frog mutant he's trying to sell Spangle to is like oh no I don't want her for sex I want her for a deeper entertainment something artistic. Uh, Arabella is a is a frog mutant and like erotic dancer who's dancing at the bar that they're all at, and there are there are humans watching it, but like there's no, they're not they're not watching it in the same way that an audience at a strip club would be watching the show, right? It's kind of just entertainment happening in the background. It's like Muzak in an elevator almost, and like I, I think you're absolutely correct that like this kind of like fascistic militarized corporation that controls all of human civilization or at least what's left of it or at least a good part of it needs to have these boundaries in place because if humans could start forming meaningful connections with the frog mutants it would destabilize these hierarchies of power precisely because you have to ask the obvious question right so if the relationships with the with the frog town is forbidden um is there the possibility of non-heterosexual relationships generally or is that something else which is like considered verboten and is heavily policed because it isn't you know reproductive i mean in the context of the movie i think we can 100 percent assume that it is if, if sex between heterosexual partners wherein one of them is unable to uh have a child yeah. is is forbidden like exactly it's, it's most sure because we we have a lot of like lines of dialogue that kind of like help us establish the world we're like especially coming from spangles character because she's like a a doctor who's in charge of this operation and she is constantly worried about sam hell's sperm count and his virility and his ability to go and stuff like that yep so so like you know what we see in this world is a world that would definitely be recreating and reinforcing all of the same uh, kind of like oppressive frameworks that we have in the one that we live in now, even with the addition of frog mutants. Um, yes, you're right. I think there would absolutely be the same policing of um, of relationships within the society, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. And there is a good, there is a good kind of example of what this could could have looked like. So... Uh, if anyone follows me on Twitter, you'll know that I'm a big fan of China Mieville, um, and particularly the Bass Lag series of novels. Perdido Street Station is great. Everyone should read it. Um, and in this fantasy world, there are many different non-human races. Um, and relationships between them are seen as quite... Between these different kinds of uh, peoples and beings is seen as quite taboo. The main character in Pedido Street Station, 
who's called Isaac, has a partner who is um, an insectoid called a Kepri. Her name is Lynn. Um, and it's it's shown as an as both a taboo and a good thing that this kind of hybridity, this kind of breaking down of hierarchies and exclusionary structures is a good thing. It also forces you to forces a, a kind of reconceptualization of what do we even mean by uh, sexuality and desire when you're dealing with um, other beings that might have radically different anatomy, for example. Uh, to return to the dance of the three snakes, <laughs> <laughs> but that that is actually a very interesting way of thinking about how how could this film have kind of gone in a more radical direction and maybe broadened out the horizons of possibilities that it's considering under its sexual politics. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think that's, a, that's an incredibly interesting limit to what we see in 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 the context of this movie. Right, like for for all these various and competing reasons, uh, human coupling with frog mutants is just forbidden by the text of the film, and I can th- yeah I can think of also a lot of like interesting sci-fi that's like no what if <laughs> Star Trek included? Yeah, I mean this is a kind of classic thing. Can we can we consider um, a sexual politics which is broader than just the human? Um, and this film kind of goes. Eh, no and in fact they're all dis- in fact they're all disgusting and the only way to deal with them is to kick them in their multiple dicks and then, and then escape yeah and i think that i think that speaks to speaks to kind of the overall complication with this film i think i think what we see in hell comes to Frogtown is kind of um you know, there's a political utility for it for us on the left because it's a vision of kind of an incompleted political project, right? It's it's what if we don't win? What if we only make partial wins? And and we can kind of see this post-apocalyptic landscape that is like ruled by one militarized company. Medtech is is Amazon a few years down the road. You know, it, it owns everything. It controls everything from reproduction to weaponry. You know, and we also see we also see like okay, what happens if we like don't have a complete and holistic understanding of abolishing the 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 kind of like bourgeois family unit? You know, it's like like what if we did that, but we kept all of the same kind of puritanical sexual politics in place? It would be, create something adjacently horrible. Precisely, and that's exactly the point that I think you see because it's played as like a kind of like feel good ending. But if you really do think about the the ending and what he's going back to. And in fact, what all of them are going back into. Uh, there's a bit that there that should make you kind of go, uh, I don't want to... S- uh, that's that's kind of really troubling. I mean, yeah, like I, I hate to keep reading this movie in context with random films it was never intended to be read in context with. But like, uh, Hell Comes to Frogtown comes out in 1988, and two years later, the first movie adaptation of The Handmaiden's Tale comes out. And it's like... Yep. I, I can't help but feel some spiritual similar similarities between this text and the other. <laughs> yep, absolutely. So is is Hell Comes to Frogtown the unofficial prequel for The Handmaid's Tale? Is a is a very important question we have to ask, even though the book was published <laughs> three years before this movie came out. <laughs> the the prequel to the Foundation of Gilead was was foreseen by by Rowdy Roddy Piper. <laughs> I just and a whole bunch of frogs. I, I I just want an episode of the Handmaid's Tale TV show now to have like 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 a welcome to Gilead sign, and then the wind blows and it falls over, and it just says "Welcome to Frogtown." <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, yes, make it happen. HBO is it on HBO that show? I, have I don't no know. No idea. <laughs> um, any final thoughts that we want to bring in? Um, no, no, I think, I think I'm good. I think we've talked, we've talked about a lot today. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of interesting dances and a lot of, uh, explosive undergarments have been covered in today's episode. I mean, we haven't talked about, uh, frogs as they're in, in their common, the common right-wing political appropriation of frogs online in contemporary internet discourse. Ooh, yeah. Um, but if you want to, like we haven't talked about 
as you say, the the semi-feudal primitive accumulation stage of capitalism that Frogtown is in. Um, but all of that will be upcoming on our future spin-off show. Welcome to Welcome to Frogtown. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it will be a series of inform- in- public information films that will be produced for the Frogtown Tourist Board um, to help explain Frogtown to all of its many visitors. Um, <laughs> and that's coming up when we reach 5,000 patrons. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You know what? I accept this. Uh, you know, our, our new 5,000 patron goal is uh, we are going to buy the rights to the Frogtown franchise and we are, we are going to keep we are going to keep that flame alive. It's gonna be. It's, it will. It's gonna be the movie Lighthouse, it, except it's gonna be you and I endlessly making Frogtown content. It will be like Welcome to Night Vale, but <laughs> with <laughs> just exclusively set in Frogtown. Oh my god, I'm so here for that. <laughs> um, well, do you know what we forgot to do again? <laughs> you know what we forgot to do again. Uh, rem- remind people that if we get to 5,000 patrons, we will buy the rights to the uh, Frogtown franchise. Uh, we forgot to tell people that they can be a patron, and we've got to put it at the t- top of the show. Eh, um, eh never mind. We w- we'll, re- we'll record those things eventually. Yeah, we'll do that. We'll d- we're so bad at this. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much for listening, uh, for our exploration of Rowdy Roddy Piper, his incredible exploding dick cage, uh, and of course, frogs. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. Ha 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 